Daniel, to uh, the, the uh, prophecy of Daniel, I ask you to turn with me this morning. We'll start our next uh, series of sermons from this book of Scripture, Daniel chapter 1. It's in your pew Bibles at page 737, 737. When I say Daniel, you of course think lion's den, right? We all know about Daniel in the lion's den. But there is much, much more to Daniel. Much more than the lion's den and the fiery furnace. Those are, of course, important pieces of history recorded for us in Daniel. And it will be our delight to stand at the entrance of the fiery furnace together with King Nebuchadnezzar and see four men walking about in the flames unbound and unsinged, though only three bound fast had been thrown into that furnace at the first. And it will be a pleasure for us with King Darius to hear Daniel's voice rising from the lion's den the next day unharmed because the Lord stopped the mouths of the lions. But there's so much more to Daniel as we shall see. Roughly half of Daniel is given to history and the other half to prophecy. We start in the historical narrative this morning, beginning with the first seven verses of Daniel chapter 1 after we pray. Father in heaven, what a great thing it is to read and to have before us words this old, these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old, preserved for us to this very day. We've come to take this for granted, Father, because we've enjoyed this privilege so long. But now we pray, Father, that you'll renew our hearts in gratitude and also stir them in attention to uh, hear your word and not only to hear it, but to be shaped by it, formed, molded by you through the working of your word in our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Daniel chapter 1, just the first seven verses this morning. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. 
Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Uh, I'm sorry, Belteshazzar. I knew I was going to mess that up. <laughs> Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Now, last week, in our brief hiatus between our series of, in Acts, in Luke Acts, and this one, we went all the way back, you remember, to Father Abraham, our father, our spiritual father, to consider the promises that God made to him and to us, to be our God and the God of our children. This week, I want to go back there again, all the way back to Abraham, because if we're going to understand Daniel's prophecy, we're going to have to understand the context in which Daniel stands. And it seems to me best to start back near the beginning with the patriarchs, the fathers. I'm going to ask you, therefore, now to, to uh, stir your hearts and to stick with me for the next few minutes, because I'm going to review some history, so you'll need to wake up and keep your eyes open as we review this wonderful and important history. Believe me, it is important for us to understand, because we need to know where Daniel stands in the big picture. So, here we go. You're all familiar, of course, with Adam and with Noah. Abraham comes next in that list of noteworthies, particularly because it was Abraham with whom God covenanted to be the father of nations and whom he chose to be the father of a multitude greater than the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. You might remember that God called Abraham out of Ur to a land, he told Abraham, that he would show him, the land we call Canaan, the promised land. Abraham, however, would not possess that land himself. Remember, God's plan was bigger than that. Abraham's descendants would possess the land, but there was much history that had yet to unfold before that would actually take place. He even told Abraham as much, you remember, back in Genesis 15. He said, no for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted 400 years. But I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now what was that nation whom they served and to whom they were slaves for those 400 years? was Egypt. Yes, thank you, precisely. It was in Egypt. And uh, there they suffered under Egypt, but Egypt suffered God's judgment, you remember, and Egypt let the people go, just as God had promised hundreds of years before, with great possessions. Remember Pharaoh and the slavery and the bricks without straw and the plagues and the exodus out of Egypt laden with gold and treasures that the Egyptians heaped upon them as they left that place. But how did they end up in Egypt to begin with? 
What happened between Abraham and Egypt? Well, you remember Abraham had a son. Remarkably, in his old age, his name was Isaac. And Isaac had two sons whose names were Esau and Jacob. And Jacob had a bunch of sons. How many? Twelve sons, yes. One of whose names was Joseph. And Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery, you remember, finding himself in Egypt. And through an arduous series of providences, Joseph found himself eventually second in command in Egypt under Pharaoh. And through another series of providences, including a widespread famine, Joseph moved his family from Canaan to Egypt, saving their lives, but also kicking off that 400-year affliction about which God had told Abraham. 400 years they spent there. It wasn't long, of course, after Joseph's time that the pharaohs had forgotten who the Israelites were, forgotten about Joseph anyway, and the history of Joseph, and so they made terrible slaves out of the Israelites. Then God raised up Moses, who led them out of the land of their bondage, out of Egypt, and right up from Egypt down here, you know, to the southwest, all the way up to the border of the promised land, to Canaan. The land that God had promised, of course, hundreds of years earlier to Abraham to give to his descendants. In the process, along the way from Egypt to Canaan, God had covenanted with his people, with uh, them under Moses, making great promises to them of rich blessings if they trusted and obeyed and remembered the Lord their God, but of terrible curses if they disobeyed God and forgot the Lord their God. Now that is very important. And we'll get back to that in just a minute. See, all of this is relevant to Daniel, I assure you. But Moses died there on that border, seeing Canaan, the land that God had promised to give to Abraham's descendants, seeing Canaan only from afar, from Pisgah's mountain. Joshua, Moses' successor, led them across the Jordan and into the promised land of Canaan, dividing, conquering and dividing the land among the 12 tribes. You've heard that number just a few minutes ago. Alas, and this is where our Sunday evening sermons series is right now, the people of God became very sinful after they entered and conquered the land. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They forgot the Lord their God, and soon the trouble began. One nation after another hassled Israel, invading, pillaging, causing her in turn to cry out for help. God heard their cries, sent them a judge, which as we've learned in the evening series really was a deliverer more than a black-robed, you know, judicial sort of judge. 
a deliverer who freed them from their enemies. But no sooner were they free, it seemed, than they returned to their sin like a dog to its vomit. And they suffered the consequences. They cried out for help. They were delivered by God through another and through another and through another. And the cycle went on and on. Remember Barak and Deborah and Gideon and Samson and Jephthah and Samuel. Well, at the culmination of that period of the judges, those dark days, the people cried out for a king. We want a king. And God gave them one. What was his name? Saul. And you remember the dismal reign that started by having to drag Saul from the baggage section and that ended with Saul committing suicide. But then David became king, and David reigned righteously, and after him his son Solomon, who built the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. Another important detail to understand Daniel in those halcyon days of Israel's existence. Sadly, the happiness was only temporary. Under Solomon's son, the kingdom was divided between north and And south, the northern ten tribes retained the name Israel, not exclusively, but uh, in the main, the northern ten tribes were called Israel, and the southern kingdom came to be known as Judah. They were all, of course, still Israel, but the ten tribes were called Israel, and the southern was called Judah. The northern kingdom went south first, if you will excuse the expression, Of course, we'd expect as much because under uh, Jeroboam, they started from the very beginning worshiping God with golden calves cut off as they were of necessity from the temple in Jerusalem in the south. A deeply, deeply sinful uh, series of wicked kings followed one after another in a period of ease and prosperity and wickedness among the people. The most notorious of those kings being uh, Ahab. This led to judgment, of course, and that judgment took the form, God's judgment of the northern tribes took the form of Assyria. Assyria became God's rod of punishment. And indeed, Assyria invaded and took the northern tribes into exile, into captivity in 722 B.C., leaving the southern kingdom, Judah, in place. Well, said Judah, the southern kingdom, and breathed a sigh of relief. Of course, they thought. Whatever these nuisance prophets like Jeremiah keep whining and crying about, we're safe. We're safe because we've got the temple, right? We've got the temple here in Jerusalem, the temple of the Lord. They said to Jeremiah, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They said, we're safe. They, of course, were wicked too and became more and more wicked, just like her northern sister, as wicked as the northern kingdom had been, prophet after prophet called on them to repent, but they would not. 
Remember Syria, who took the northern tribes into exile? Assyria was taken over by another empire. Which empire was that? Babylon, right? The Babylonian Empire. You see, I am getting there. (laughs) Hang in there with me. We're getting to Daniel. The Babylonian Empire. Thank you for hanging in there. The Babylonian Empire became the superpower in the region. And as superpowers and leaders of superpowers are sometimes want to do. We can think of one in particular who is about it right now in uh, Eastern Europe, can't we? Uh, Whose name, like they want to do, the king of Babylon, whose name was, of course, as we just read, Nebuchadnezzar engaged in several military campaigns designed to increase Babylon's, uh, the Babylonian Empire's uh, influence and territory. Nebuchadnezzar took over Judah, the southern kingdom we were talking about, during the reign of Jehoiakim. And you can read more about that history in your Bibles at 2 Kings 24. And at that time, he took out of there uh, vessels of the house of God, just as we read in Daniel 1, chapter 2, a moment ago, and also some of the people, royals and nobles, particularly the good-looking ones, the smart ones, and among them was a young man by the name of Daniel, probably uh, still in his teens. Eventually... Within a few years, Nebuchadnezzar would return to Jerusalem to finish the job. He captured the city in 597 B.C. and destroyed Jerusalem, including the temple that Solomon had built in 586 B.C., taking along with him into Babylon a sizable portion of the Jewish population of Judea. This we call the Babylonian captivity, which lasted until another empire took over Babylon when the Persians defeated the Babylonians, and under the Persians, the Jews were sent back to Judea. Now, why all of this history? Well, for one thing, it's important for us to understand, as I say, where Daniel stands in the stream of events, if we're going to understand Daniel at all. But even more, because this is, as it is sometimes called, this is his story. You all know what I'm talking about, don't you? You've seen this before. His story, history is God's story. It is his story of the working out and the moving and directing of all things according to his perfect plan. Nothing that I've said to you this morning happened by accident. Nothing. God created Adam. God saved Noah and his family alone from the devastating flood. God covenanted with Abraham. God gave Abraham a son in his old age. God gave Isaac twin sons. God chose Jacob, not Esau. God moved Joseph's brothers to sell him into slavery in Egypt because, as Joseph told them later, 
You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God raised up Moses. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God sent the plagues. God brought them into the land of Canaan. God sent them uh, victory to defeat the enemies in Canaan and conquer the land. God sent them deliverers when they became disobedient. God gave them a king, and on and on it goes. Even the Babylonians were raised up by God. Remember the prophet Habakkuk, who cried out to the Lord concerning the injustice that he witnessed in his day, the sin in Judah and Jerusalem, crying out to God to make this right. And God answers Habakkuk in a way that causes Habakkuk to reel back on his heels. God says, Habakkuk, I'm sending the Babylonians. Habakkuk says, no, not that. I'm sending the Babylonians, and that's exactly what he did. And that's exactly what we read about today. And not only did he lead the Babylonians right up to Judah's door by the hand, but as we read just a moment ago in verse 2, the Lord, God, gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. God did this. Now here's the point. Two of them, actually. Two points that we will see. I will not apologize for that. We will see it over and over and over and over again in Daniel. In the weeks and the months to come, if the Lord gives them to us. Two points, Christians. Your God is sovereign. And your God is is faithful. First, your God is sovereign. In the events of verse 1, the first wave of Babylonian oppression in Judah after Nebuchadnezzar had whooped up on the Egyptians at Carchemish in 605 B.C., I say in these events, God was actively working and sovereignly directing in the history of his people, in the history of all people, and particularly of his people. Why did Jehoiakim melt at the sight of Nebuchadnezzar? Why did he surrender even the sacred articles of the temple to Nebuchadnezzar? The answer is not far from you. It's sitting right there in your Bibles in front of you. It was because of the Lord. This was not simply just a corollary of Babylon's rise to power. No, the Lord gave Judah into Babylon's hand. From the very start of this book, from the very opening words, the message is plain and it is simple. God rules. And he directs history and nations and kings and peoples according to his perfect will. What must that mean for us today? Well, dear flock, consider the one who ruled Babylon and Judah 
and Assyria and Egypt and Persia and Greece and Rome, your God still rules. The day Archduke Franz Ferdinand's limousine took a wrong turn in Serbia 100 years ago last month and happened to drive by a 19-year-old named Gavrilo Princip, who happened to be loitering there at the time, saw his opportunity and pulled out his gun and killed Ferdinand and his wife, and all hell broke loose in Europe, World War I, God was on the throne. And he was directing Ferdinand's limousine. When a young high school dropout and rejected art student became the chairman of the Nazi party seven years later, God was still on the throne. Over Gaza and Jerusalem today, where the events we just read about here in Daniel took place so many centuries ago. God is still on the throne. Over Moscow and Donetsk, God is still on the throne. We'll hear much in Daniel about Christ, perhaps more than any other prophet in the Old Testament. Daniel speaks about and prophesies Messiah's coming and reign. That Messiah, that Christ, Paul says, rules over all things for the church. All things. All things. All men, all nations, all rulers, all principalities, all the powers in heaven and on earth and under the earth are under his sovereign control, command, rule. Your God reigns. Actively, directly, sovereignly, your God reigns over it all. So whatever fears you may have, whatever uneasiness of thoughts that the news media might bring your way, put them away right now. Your God reigns. Whether you live or whether you die, whether your life proves to be one of largely ease or devastatingly difficult, the king, the king, your king, rules it all. And he is faithful, which is the second point. Your God is faithful. Now, how... How, you ask, how was God's faithfulness revealed here in Daniel 1? Well, in a way that might surprise you, in a way that may not, in fact, prove to be your favorite way to see how God is faithful. But God's faithfulness is revealed here in his faithfulness to his promise to punish disobedient Israel. Did I mention to you just a few minutes ago, that when God covenanted with the people under Moses' leadership, 
He made promises to them. God promised them. He said, if you will obey me, if you will remember the Lord your God when I bring you into the land that I'm giving you, you will be blessed. You can go back and read those blessings. They were overwhelming blessings that would be theirs if they obeyed and followed him. You can look back at Leviticus 26. He promises, if you forget me, I will scatter you among the nations and will unsheathe the sword after you and your land shall be a desolation and your city shall be a waste and those of you who are left shall rot away in your enemies' lands. So he made promises of blessings, but he also made promises of curses. God promised them, if you forget me, if you disobey me, there will be consequences. And this, the Lord's a little bit different from some of us as parents, isn't he? If you do that one more time, you will know, be in trouble. One more time. Okay, well, one more time. You know, and I'm going to give you a spanking. Oh, okay, one more time, you're going to get a spanking. We prove ourselves unfaithful as parents, don't we? He proves himself perfectly faithful to all of his promises. All of them. He's faithful to his word. In fact, we can remember... An even more specific example from Isaiah of this, can't we? Remember the three years we spent in Isaiah. And you say, oh, I remember. (laughs) Don't remind me about three years we spent in Isaiah and these Sunday mornings. And they were hard, yes, in some ways. We saw some hard things in that book. But we saw some wonderful things in Isaiah too, didn't we? We saw God saying... Something to King Hezekiah. Remember Hezekiah? Remember Isaiah's castigating word to Hezekiah when Hezekiah joined the alliance with Merodach Baladin of Babylon a hundred years before this, a hundred years before Daniel, trusting in their joint military muscle as a way of facing Assyria. Remember all that? And here was the word for Hezekiah for trusting in military muscle instead of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming. Remember, this is a hundred years before Daniel. The days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Well, it took a hundred years, but it happened. As he said, just as God said, God is faithful to his word, even if it takes time. All of his promises are altogether sure and certain. And if his promises to judge and to punish are true, if he is faithful to do what Isaiah calls his strange work, then how much more will he not be faithful to all of the promises that he has made to you? Promises of blessing. 
promises of mercy and love and grace. It may be a strange way to think of it at first, dear flock, but looking on the judgments of God and the exactness with which he fulfills all of his dark promises, we may take full confidence that he will fulfill all that he has promised to do for us both in this life and in the life to come. But there's another way that God's faithfulness is seen in this text, another way that might not at first strike you that way, but it has to do with those vessels from the temple. When the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon's hands, he also put into Nebuchadnezzar's hands some other things, verse 2, some of the vessels of the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar, in turn, took those vessels from the temple, hauled them back to Shinar, uh, Shinar, the house of his God there, and placed them in the treasury of his God. You get the picture? Now to us, that might seem like a small matter, collecting some souvenirs from Jerusalem, right? Not for them. Taking vessels from the temple of one God and putting them in the temple of another God was tantamount to saying, my God wins. Right? My God has defeated your God. Your God wasn't even strong enough to hold on to his stuff. So my God took it from him. It was, in other words... A humiliation. It was, it was the humiliation of a God to lose his sacred things to another. But what do we have here? We have Yahweh, the true God, the one true God, suffering humiliation. And doing so not only willingly, but at his own hand, by his own doing. God knew what this would look like to the world as Babylon marched away with his things, with the sacred things, took them to Shinar, how the pagans would sing, praise Marduk from whom all blessings flow. That day. What do we have here? Is God willingly suffering shame for the sake of his people? In this case, for the sake of awakening his people to their spiritual peril. But is that not exactly what God has done in Jesus Christ? Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, 
and being found in human form, humbling himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. God, your God, has even become sin for you to bring upon himself the deepest shame, the darkest and blackest defilement in the world on the cross. Why? For your sake, to save you. To be faithful, by the way, to his promise, to a promise he'd made way, way, way back, back beyond Daniel, back beyond Isaiah, way back, way, way back in Genesis 3. Remember his promise? That from Eve would come one whose heel Satan would strike, would bruise, but who would bruise Satan's head. He is sovereign and he is faithful. And what better combination could you have in your God than those when in your case he is bent on exercising those two things, his sovereignty and his faithfulness in grace to you. The world can't see this. The world looks at Daniel and they miss it completely. They haven't even the eyes to see it, but, but you can. And in so doing, you join with those spiritual fathers and mothers of ours in the early Christian church who dated the deaths of their martyrs according to the appropriate year and then added this, Regnanta Jesu Christo, in the reign of Jesus Christ. Christian, your God reigns. He ever has. And he ever will. Amen.